Lockdown Fiverr podcast. Uh, my name's Bolon Tanner, and this week I'm all alone as Joel has abandoned me for uh, the attractions of Prince Edward Island. Um, and uh, what he thinks he's doing, taking breaks in the summer, it's just disgraceful. Uh, however, I am joined uh, by uh, our guest this week, who is a, uh, a former uh, trustee candidate for Holton District School Board and um, uh, uh, an Oakville born and raised education advocate, uh, former small business operator, uh, BIA board member, um, and who I suspect, although I haven't asked him directly, is going to be running again in the future for, for school trustee, and we can get into that. Um, and uh, that's Nathaniel Arfin. Uh, Nathaniel, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So um, the other week, you, you uh, with an article that we've published on our website, which is also on the Oakville News website, um, uh, about the rushed, well, as, as you say rushed, and we'll get into whether it is rushed or not, and, you know... <laughs> No surprise, yes, yes, it's rushed. Um, the rushed <laughs> education overhauls, the, the, the uh, new curriculum that's been announced um, uh, literally almost on the last day of the school year uh, for languages um, uh, in uh, Ontario by, by the ministry, um, kind of as their parting shot to teachers as, as, as the teachers think they're about to embark on a long, on a well-earned break. Um, and uh, the con- uh, you wrote about the context of this within the other kind of curriculum overhauls that have happened in the last couple of years. So maybe you could start off by telling us a bit and give us the edited highlights of your article and what exactly has been going on. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm actually going to back up a bit from the curriculum just to frame it slightly differently than I did in the article. Um, in 2019, the Ontario Human Rights Commission started their inquiry on the right to read. When they released that report uh, in the spring of 2022, they came out and said, we're teaching reading completely wrong. This is something that teachers have known. This is something that my wife, as, as an educator who really loves her literacy programming, has told me multiple times, we teach reading incorrectly in the province of Ontario. When this commission came out with their report, boards and teachers were thrilled with the results because they were saying the same things that the teachers themselves had been saying. We need to focus on phonics-based learning and really breaking down the words and the letters and the sounds instead of doing guessing towards words. These changes weren't revolutionary, but they were implemented rapidly by the teachers into their classrooms. What's rushed about this new curriculum isn't the changes in the way we teach, but more so in the way that they are being asked to assess. Um, I talk about it a bit in the article. A lot of teachers are super excited about this new programming and what it brings to the learners in the classroom. What they're scared about is the fact that they're ripping out assessment tools that are already in place. So the way that they teach, the way they test is also changing. And there hasn't been any allowance for the teachers to learn these new testing methodologies or really how they're expected to assess students in the fall. And I guess, I mean, the the thing that 
you know, reading between, line, between the lines of what you've just said, I mean, that this report came out a few months ago. Uh, when you say March, when was that? What is it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we've gone from March to June. We've got an entirely new curriculum introduced that quickly. So three months from someone saying, hey, it'd be nice if we changed the curriculum. We think it would be good to a new curriculum. And inherently in that, that tells us that there's no consultation, no kind of research or let's try this out and kick the tires and see if it actually works the way we think it will work. No, no speaking to unions, no speaking to teachers, no speaking to boards, no speaking to parents, no speaking to, it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to change this. Uh, we know best because we're the Ministry of Education. Here's your curriculum. Get on with it. Oh, and by the way, um, we're going to tell you at the last possible minute uh, that you have to do this before you come back to work in two months. Um, and when I say, you know, the phrase come back to work has a certain weight to it that some teachers are going to object to, but you know what I mean? It's the summer break. Um, is that is that a, you know I'm I'm putting my own kind of spin on this thing here, but but is that the kind of issue that 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 we're dealing with here? That's you've you framed it pretty well. The one thing I will say is that the, the curriculum that has been put together that was shown is a really really robust and good curriculum. Everyone I've spoken to from principals to educators, they love the content of this curriculum. What they're asking for is an opportunity to provide feedback on it and to learn and understand what the contents are. Because you're talking about a, I, I think it was over a 160 page document just on the preamp, just on the introduction, not getting into the assessments and the various tools that they're being asked to use and implement. And it's, it's just emblematic of, of this government and the way that they choose to introduce change. They basically say, we know best. Here's the change, implement it. And when that doesn't work, they say, well, it's because you didn't try hard enough. You fought against it. And it's, it's a way to create division and discord that's really unfair because the public doesn't know the intricacies of these documents. They don't see, they see the, the headlines where it's like, oh, we're reintroducing cursive. Who cares? What really matters is that teachers are being asked to change everything they know about teaching language in two months when they're supposed to be on break. And this is, you know, and excuse my ignorance here, this is all languages, this is English and French and any other languages that are being taught, it's all languages. That's correct. And, yes. and so just for people who are almost as profoundly ignorant as me, um, having not, you know, I'm always a good example of someone ignorant about education here because I didn't go through the system. I get confused about grades still. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the basics, the basics confuse me having grown up somewhere else uh, and I don't have kids so I've had no reason to really familiarize myself properly um, but the phonics versus whatever they're currently or were currently doing argument what's what's the change here I mean how how is this gonna kind of manifest itself in the classroom as far as students and teachers are concerned so as I said, a lot, a lot of teachers have implemented these strategies already. And what it comes down to is instead of having the 
children look or the, the learners look for patterns and identify word combinations that make sense is actually looking at the sounds and the letters and how they work together, looking at different consonant groups, looking at things like SK and TH and why they sound the way that they do, introducing those rules behind the, the words, um, things like I before E except after C, they still exist. And by introducing those rules and then challenging the students to explore the exceptions to those rules, you're creating a more um, discovery. I don't want to say discovery based because discovery based has kind of a bad connotation, but the, the children are taking what they know and exploring based on that and finding exceptions and, and building their language skills from a core framework rather than looking at words and trying to guess. And I think if I remember rightly, and I could be wrong, uh, way back in the, in the stone age when I was educated and my siblings were educated, this was being introduced then. And it was, it's, this is the second go round for phonics as, as far as I understand it and politics being politics and that's kind of the way where why it kind of went away and now it's maybe coming back again. Um, I, I think when I was taught to read, it was very much about sounds and not A, B, C, D, E, but I mean, I know I'm simplifying and I'm to a ridiculous level, but you're, you're right. And it's actually, there's an interesting history in the way that we moved away from phonics based learning. Uh, what a lot of, educators believed at the time is that they were becoming input output robots. They weren't actually educating. They were saying, okay, kids look at TH today. The, 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 okay, kids. And so on and so forth. So it became this cycle where the teachers weren't actually interacting with the kids. And that's a big, big difference in this curriculum versus traditional phonics based curricula, the teachers have to consider the individual needs of their learners. Um, there's a lot in the Right to Read report, which talks about the need for additional supports, not only directly in the classroom, but also in the school community on the whole. One thing that it specifically points to, and it's actually in the curriculum, is the need for uh, teacher librarians. And teacher librarians, this is, it's fantastic that the, the government wants to have teacher librarians taking a role. The problem is that we don't have any. We got rid of them a couple of years ago. I remember them going. <laughs> we weren't. It's literally the, two years ago, wasn't it? When we got rid of them, they were going away in favor of a special resource teacher for the COVID-19 pandemic. And now the special resource teacher is gone. And we still don't have any teacher libraries. Yeah. So we got rid of both jobs um, due to funding cuts. And now the curriculum is calling for these teacher librarians and we just don't have them anymore. Um, so there's, there's already a gap in how we're going to be able to implement this curriculum because the resources there that it calls for, they don't exist. So, I mean, to sort of summarize what we've discussed so far, in many ways, the 
the objection is not to the curriculum. The objection is to how the curriculum is being introduced, um, the shortness of time, the lack of involvement of the stakeholders, for want of a less annoying word. (laughs) (laughs) One of my least favorite words, but anyway, we know what it means. The teachers and the students and the parents um, and unions and blah, blah, blah. Um, And and the fact that it's like, okay, you got two months, deal with it, do it, do it now. so, so the, the curriculum itself is less of the issue, really. Absolutely. Um, the, the implementation is where the Ministry of Education continues to fail educators and learners. Uh, another easy example, a few years ago, they switched to a new Markbook program called Aspen. Um, and Aspen was supposed to save the world but teachers weren't even able to look at reports from the previous year in this new this, system. This, so this they, the they software, lost context. Yeah. So this is the software that teachers use like to do reports, to do keep track of records. Right. I have some familiarity with the annoyance involved with the, uh, with the various softwares that are out there. And certainly that you know, it was replaced and rather than getting better, it got worse. And it's like, oh, I can't do this really basic thing anymore. Um, uh, and that happens in software. But when I looked into why specifically this happened with Aspen, what I found was the ministry required there be a stakeholder group, um, just to go back to your favorite word. Yeah. And that stakeholder group had to Im- include um, principals, trustees, board staff, education professionals, but not the teachers and not the teachers union. Not the people who are actually going to use it. Yeah. And this isn't a complicated piece of technology, but in any type of software development, the people who are using it are the best people to give you feedback. I mean, as a whole separate subject for, for another day about government's government's relationship with with software development and um it's i mean ironic so i mean the, my actual day job is basically as a software developer and there was a time where i thought hey, you get into government work you know it's going to be well paid and all this stuff and you have to jump through all sorts of hoops to do that and and rightfully so you should have to jump through hoops before you can develop software for you know schools or hospitals or whatever um the only problem being is I don't think those hoops actually narrow the developers down to the good companies. Um, they narrow them down to the people who've got the wherewithal to go through the process of getting authenticated. So, I mean, I've seen government websites for like applications for a variety of things over the years, and they suck so badly <laughs> always. And it's like, who designed this thing? Like what? idiot this is like something from you know 19 well, 2001 with you know animated gifs and javascript that only works on internet explorer kind of level garbage you know and um i, I can't tell you which teacher's system i've seen but it was like oh my god this is like you know this is so bad and the things that need to be fixed could be fixed with a 10 minute phone call to a developer to say can you get rid of that but that's never going to happen because it would have to go through all these channels and levels and be approved and 
the last thing you're ever going to do is actually speak to the developer who's like, oh yeah, I can do that. Take me 10 minutes. <laughs> anyway, that's another maddening subject and one of my personal hobby horses. But um, again, it speaks to that disconnect and the fact is like, okay, let's not bother talking to the people who are going to use it. I mean, for goodness sake, it's just infuriating, <laughs> that kind of stupidity. But I mean, to go in a slightly different direction now, I mean, is this ultimately about the fact that the progressive conservative government doesn't like teachers, doesn't like unions, and is kind of like, we're not going to talk to you guys because you're the enemy. Here's what you're going to do. Suck it up. I mean, is that kind of the, the undercurrent here? Well, I'm not going to suggest that the government release this curriculum in bad faith. But what I am going to point out is that the government is currently in bargaining with the major education unions. And from the talks I've heard, there's, uh, there's not a lot of progress. And this just seems like another wrench to throw in an already complicated, messy bargaining situation. And, and just to give everybody, people who are less familiar with, with the subject, some, some more context. I mean, this is the third curriculum to be introduced in, in the last three years. Now, people may remember that we also had uh, this thing called COVID going on the previous two years. Uh, so there was the, the maths curriculum, science, uh, sorry, math curriculum, science curriculum, and now this one. And well, what timing in the year were each of those other curricula uh, introduced? Yeah, um, it, it was it was similar similar time frames. Um, and this it's it's something that in my article, you know, I, I spoke to the Etfo local president about this. They are continuously providing these new curricula and saying, learn it we'll give you the resources. And then when the teachers actually ask for those resources, they're non-existent. It, with this current curricula, they provided two webinars and that was their, their way of justifying the release schedule. In fact, they said, we can say this isn't a rush curricula because we provided these webinars, two webinars in the last week of school. Um, it was similar with math and similar with science. They put the documentation up and they say, read it. And yeah, they'll give them professional development time in the fall. They'll put it in there. But who's running these sessions? Who are the subject matter experts? Who knows this curriculum? Because I've spoken to a principal and she doesn't know this curriculum. She, she got it the same day the teachers and the general public did. It's, it's insane. Uh, I, I know with the, with the, well, I mean, I've spoken to teachers or at least a teacher, uh, you know, and this is, this is opinion, it's anecdote coming, coming from, from a teacher. But um, so, you know, I have to sort of put that caveat on it, but their feeling <laughs> very strongly expressed was that with the math curricula uh, cur curriculum, now, the ministry was standing there saying, yes, we're providing training, we're providing the support. And their feeling was, well, I, I don't think I'd be misquoting them to say that they felt that that was a lie, like a, a straight out lie from the ministry, that there was absolutely no training. Now, I'm sure the ministry would probably be able to pull something out of somewhere that counts as training 
that means that when they say that it's not a lie um but uh you know sort of taking the more um human interpretation of honesty um uh i suspect there was quite a lot of truth for that and you know what they said was like well any training that did come was from the unions or from the school boards it was nothing to do with there was no ministry support no ministry training no ministry it was just like here's curriculum teach it um uh, it, it, does that tally with again with your kind of experience of how this stuff has uh, uh rolled out yeah so the, the the unions do offer the advanced qualification courses they provide that training a lot of the content is provided by the ministry but it's definitely not fair to say that the ministry is providing training through that channel that's not the ministry providing training if the ministry is providing training they're sending resources directly to the teachers directly into the schools uh, and providing paid sessions for the teachers to learn this curriculum in advance. If a teacher has to pay out of pocket to take a course and then get reimbursed after the fact, that's not training. That's a course that they have to take. And it's it's not fair to describe it as training. So, I mean, let's get into the, the always delicate subject of, of the summer break for teachers, because is this relevant here, uh, unfortunately or fortunately or whatever? Um, because it seems there's a clear implication that, um, and we know that there's this, there's certainly uh, a significant element of the population that would agree with this. It's like, well, you guys are just sitting there on your asses for two months. You know, uh, you, you, you are so fortunate. You get two whole months off every year to do absolutely nothing. Go and learn a new curriculum. That's not asking too much, is it? Uh, it's like stop whinging you overpaid union spoiled whatever you know i'm just putting i'm playing devil's advocate here clearly uh what's the answer to that to that accusation you only have to look at the amount of work that teachers put into continuously improving their education paths for their learners to really know that they're not stopping their day at 3 p.m. or 3.30, whenever the bell rings. And that holds true over the summer as well. The other thing I'd say is, when do you like to go on vacation, Roland? <laughs> uh, every fifth year or so. <laughs> but no, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's my problem because I'm self-employed. Um, yeah, I mean, the summer, obviously. Uh, I mean, I don't get two months, but, but, but I, you know, the fact is that they don't get two months break. I mean, actually, one of the more important things that I did not know until recently is that teachers are not paid for 12 months of the year. They're actually paid for 10 months, and that is prorated over 12, um, but it's 10 months pay uh, that they receive. So they are not actually being paid. So if you're expecting them to work in those two months, they're working for free. Um, and you may say, yes. well, teachers are paid very well uh, compared with other professions and blah, blah, blah. That all may be true, although there'll be those who dispute it. But a contract is a contract is a contract. They have agreed to work 10 months of the year and you're asking them to work 12. Uh, that's breaking a contract ultimately. I mean, it, it's, you know, you wouldn't accept it in other professions. So why are we expecting teachers to accept it? If we 
had teachers stop doing the extra work that they do, our education system would cease to function entirely. We are already so, so reliant on unpaid labor. It's, it's crazy. I, I mean, I'm sure back in the day when most listeners listening to this went to school, attended class, they opened up their textbook and, or they opened up a workbook. That stuff doesn't exist in the same way anymore. Teachers have to provide these resources themselves. So not only are they paying for the resources out of pocket, not only are they spending the time on their preps and on their lunches and, and outside of school building these plans, they're spending time researching what materials work based on every individual student need. That's how personal real great teachers will get. And it's the, the level, level of effort I see from my wife, absolutely. Um, and I know that that's reflected throughout Halton. Um, it's why we have such great results, great education outcomes in Halton, is because the teachers here truly, truly care. Um, it's, it's reflected throughout. Uh, certainly, that's absolutely my experience, too, with, with, with the teachers I know. I've certainly got more familiar with, 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 with teaching and teachers in, the, in recent time. Um, and, you know, sort of seeing it up close. I mean, it's a funny kind of story. When, when I was at school, I mean, I, I was an art student, right? So I went and did a history degree. And it's like, okay, Roland, what can you do with a history degree? And it's like, well, you could be a teacher or you could be a librarian. Uh, these are the options that were put before me. And, and you know, the one thing I knew, even at sort of 16 years old, was like, I can't be a teacher. <laughs> That's not going to end well for me. <laughs> I'm going to get murdered. <laughs> so I could kind of appreciate at the age of 16 that this is a very difficult job and it can go very badly if you don't have the skills to control the classroom or... You know, it's like, oh God, no, uh, I'll do the history degree anyway, but that's not on my, that's not in my future. Um, and now sort of coming back to it uh, 35 years later or something and seeing uh, someone teaching up close, uh, <laughs> anybody who's going to tell them that oh, you've got it easy is just not on the same planet. <laughs> it's like, just try uh, a week in their shoes uh, I, I it's 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 kind of terrifying what teachers have to do every day <laughs> and I mean look at what happened over the pandemic look look at did any kids attend virtual class oh I mean because because the parents couldn't get them to sit in front of a computer and yet you have teachers who are able to get these classes together and they're able to teach them and they're able to make meaningful, impactful differences in individual lives. And you complain about it. It's, it's, it never makes sense to me that kind of complaint that, oh, teachers have it easy, especially with the knowledge we now have after COVID. We need teachers in schools and we need them teaching our kids because that's how they will learn. It's, I mean, it's ultimately the teachers get the rough end of the stick with the entire kind of argument about unions and what unions do. It's because they have a strong union and the union has, over the years, had a great deal of success in negotiating things that other people don't get. 
the problem is why do we look at someone else having a favorable situation who's negotiated uh over decades for a favorable situation and you know they've had to give up many of those favorable situations in recent years and, and decades but anyway let's 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 say for the time being they still have a good deal and we look at that and go well that's not fair i don't have that take it away from them rather than <laughs> give that to me too <laughs> you know it's like it's 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 like looking at someone and say well i had to go to a court and this guy can afford a lawyer and i can't afford a lawyer take his lawyer away it's like no no the, the argument is that you should be able to have a lawyer too. Uh, it, it's it's a kind of infuriating, but that's politics, right? I mean, politicians I think... feed on this kind of making people feel selfish about things rather than let's all work together so that we can all have a good deal. I think something that plays into that too is the fact that we, for the most part, all went through the school system. Um, at least the vast majority of us uh, are are minister of education aside um <laughs> yeah <it's literally. laughs> uh, so we, we all went through this education system and there's there's somewhat of a an assumption that yeah i could do this because most people aren't as self-aware as you or i and won't take that step back and say holy crap that's a shit show that i don't want to deal with everyone looks back at their time in school and says i can do that they don't really consider what that day-to-day is when they're judging teachers for making more than that um, or, or for having a holiday that they wish they could have. They're not actually considering the, the after-school clubs that these teachers are expected to participate in um, or the continuous learning that they all do take part in. People don't consider those things. Yeah, and and the school trips and the end of year, um, uh, yeah, trips and, and all completely unpaid. Uh, and you know, I ask anybody out there who's listening to this, going, "Well, these guys have just you know swallowed the Kool Aid and are just um, spouting whatever the teachers want spouted." T- to ask themselves, would you go on a, on a, on a five day trip or to a foreign country for your company, unpaid? Uh, and by the way, while you're on that trip, you're going to have to look after 30 or 60 or 100 unruly youths <laughs> who make sure that you don't lose any or, or, you know, they don't do anything ridiculous or cause an international incident. Uh, that's not the kind of responsibility I would ever take on unpaid. <laughs> yeah. Or paid, to be honest, but definitely not unpaid. <laughs> um, it's uh yeah i mean it it, it, again well like so many things in life it's like you know the old cliche walk walk a mile in someone's moccasins or something before you criticize them uh uh, it's absolutely true um it's it's like it's not until you see it kind of in action and the teaching these days if it ever was it's so much less about just teaching um the teachers i know uh all of them are and it varies from from board to board and and classroom to classroom depending on the kind of exact social makeup of of where you're teaching and who you're teaching and age groups and the rest basically they're social workers unpaid untrained social workers about 50 percent of the time it seems to me 
uh, which which is uh, you know we, we had an episode a few months back with um, uh, Karen Brown, the uh, the uh, president of ETFO, specifically on the issue of of you know sort of growing violence in schools and um, uh, you know the level of dangers that the teachers are often um, uh, faced with, which is really um, significant, <laughs> it seems to me. Um, uh, and you know, basically dealing with society's problems day in, day out in the classroom um, without the training or the resources or the, 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 the backing to get it right. Uh, is that something you, you can speak to as well? Without speaking specifically, um, my, because my wife's an educator, I'm not going to bring up any specific places or names or anything of that nature. But, you, you know, she comes home and she'll tell me that she's having to adjust learning plans because a kid's parent died. And that's now her role is to, to change the way that she supports this learner ensuring that they're still progressing or at least not failing out as a result of this traumatic event in their life. And that's not new. It's not the first time I've heard this experience from her. It's, it's something very common for teachers to deal with and dealing with student trauma and helping them along and making sure that they're still learning and growing through that pain without being paid psychologists and trying to avoid offering medical advice. It's like this very difficult balancing act that they have to thread while also recognizing their responsibility to inform parents or inform CAS in some cases, or inform, you know, whatever authoritative body you, you want to name of any specific issue. So they have to juggle the trust element. They have to juggle the emotional aspect, the learning growth, and their responsibilities to various organizations as an educator. The, I mean, so this has been the pattern from the province. This is the third uh, curriculum to kind of get brought in lasting in the year. It seems to, it seems to me it, it's a deliberate, you know, Really, you have to do it on the last day of the school year. You know, it's it's a it's a political point. You know, it, it seems it's calculated. It's a calculated insult in many ways. You know, uh, not in many ways, just in every way. I think. Um, and and they know that it will play to a certain voter base, which is their voter base. Um, what? So, I mean, you, you ran for, for, for school trustee in, in last year. Um, if I get my, yeah, it was last year, right? 2022, that was the election. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like I think forever so. ago. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing from your continued kind of uh, involvement and writing letters to newspapers and blogs and podcasts and the rest, that you, you likely have an interest in running again uh, in, in the future. I mean, is that something you're willing to speak to now? I have definitely not made a decision um, in any way or another. When I ran last year, I was running for wards three and six uh, while living in ward five. 
this year, um, actually in, in a couple months, I'm moving into Ward 3. Uh, so it, it's, it puts me in an interesting position because it's, that, was, that was something that really held me back in the last election, was not being able to connect on a daily basis just with neighbors on, on common issues. Not being able to connect with people locally I really, really did impact, uh, impact my election. Um, whether or not I'm going to run, that's still a question. Well, uh, we appreciate you staying involved because often people who <laughs> kind of include myself in this to an extent, uh, people who've run decide they're not going to run again or haven't decided or whatever, and they disappear. And I always say, you know, it's, it's nice. It's like, well, you care about the subject enough to stay involved and that, that, that's, that's important. So good for you for that. Um, in terms of you know, speaking to a hypothetical future, I mean, when this kind of thing comes along, I mean, what, what's the role of the school board in that? I mean, is there anything they can actually do? Can trustees actually do anything with regard to the ministry and say, hey, this, is, this isn't on? Or is it just a matter of, you know, really you're, you're there to agree the budget and move on? I would not be surprised to see the school board write a sternly worded letter. <laughs> that's uh, I would not be surprised okay. <laughs> but that's um, that's about it um yeah. that's that's really what the the board and what trustees can do is they can continue to advocate for students but they can't change the path of the curriculum and especially with uh the the bill c or uh, bill 28 I, I can't remember the better schools better outcomes whatever act they're taking away more and more tools that trustees do have to change the learning and change the education paths for learners in their boards, which is really problematic, especially here in Halton, because we have some of the lowest funding in Ontario as a board, if not the lowest funded board on a per pupil basis. So our trustees their ability to budget and manage that budget is more important than in anywhere, any other board. They have to be frugal. They have to be tight with the money. And they've done an excellent job delivering exceptional learning outcomes. But at some point, they're going to have to push back and say, we can't do this anymore. I just don't know what that looks like. And just, I mean, we're, we're, We're going into overtime here, and um, uh, (laughs) the uh, but um, but why is that? I mean, why why not just every student gets the same amount assigned to them? I mean, why why would Halton end up with less money than 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 other boards? the The funding is determined on a per pupil basis. There is some math that goes into it, but there's also performance modifiers. There's there's things that the board tries to do to make learning more or sorry the ministry tries to do to make learning more equitable throughout the province and because halton is a more affluent region and because there's there's various factors that go into this but halton ends up being lower funded and the expectation is that the public and and the community will be able to contribute more to the overall learning but what ends up happening in that scenario is the opposite you have the the disenfranchised the the lower income families 
who are disproportionately impacted because of a high level assumption that the area is more affluent. That's probably a topic for for another day, but 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 thanks for get for for for, for addressing it. It's always it's always good to throw in an extra question to to a, to, to a guest to see if they're actually <laughs> paying attention to more than just what we asked them to talk about. So. But um, uh, we should probably should uh, draw it to a close at that point. Um, thanks, Nathaniel Arfin, for joining us today um, and uh, exploring this area. I, th- I think, um, well, uh, the whole area of, of, of schools uh, and teaching uh, is something we come back repeatedly because there's so many important issues and that they don't get a lot of attention in, in um, traditional media. So um, uh, thanks for uh, helping us get into that, get into the weeds in this subject a bit more. Thanks for having me. Uh, education is really the great equalizer and uh, more attention to it. And the more that we put into it, the better the outcomes we're going to have as a society. Um, so thanks. Thanks again. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.